The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. You tap into that gut feel every single time you fully trust that and then commit to what you feel. It's absolutely the right decision with all the information that you've got right there and then. Well, welcome to the Good Investing Podcast, episode number 31. My name is Matt Nicard. I'm co-founder and CEO of Ethical Partners Funds Management. And my guest today, who's sitting here in the room with me, he has to sit through this introduction. I'm sorry, Shane, is Shane Watson, retired Australian cricket all-rounder, one of the best all-rounders across all formats Australia has ever produced. But what makes Shane different is the time that he's taken to open up about the mental side of the game using his own experience to demonstrate how important that absolutely is. Just a little bit on Shane, most will know his background, but he achieved most things on the cricket field. Two World Cups, two IPL titles, two Allen Border medals, one PSL title, as well as an Ashes Series win. He's played for or managed and coached, I counted these up, and I don't know if you can actually name them, (laughs) 30 different cricket teams, including the Gilchrist Eleven. Yes, it was. I don't recall that one. The Bush Fire Bash. I know a fair amount about cricket and I don't recall that, but that's one of the 30 across, I'm going to say about 10 countries and states. The T20 World Cup in 2012, he was player of the tournament as highest run scorer and second highest wicket taker. In 2013, he became Australia's 44th test captain in India, I believe. It was India, yeah. He played 59 test matches, 190 one-day internationals and 58 T20 internationals. But now he's helping the next generation of cricketers coming through, I guess, using all of his knowledge that he's gained throughout his life to date. And he's doing this through his mental skills book, initially called Winning the Inner Battle. Now I've got a copy right here in front of me. I read that over Christmas. It's now being relaunched as The Winner's Mindset by HarperCollins. And I think it's available pretty shortly, Shane. Yeah, launching on the 31st of January. All right, 2024. Good timing. Yep. <laughs> and we've actually got a giveaway as well. We're kind of doing this and run here, but we're um, we're going to give away five signed copies of The Winner's Mindset, um, and there's going to be a secret question. You have to listen <laughs> to the end. Um, and the five that uh, email the answer through to um, support at ethicalpartners.com.au um, with the answer to the question of which uh, who is the best slip fielder Shane has ever seen, uh, first five through, we'll, uh, we'll get the signed <laughs> autographed book of The Winner's Mindset. Very much doing that on the run, Shane. So um, I'm sure we'll get um, thousands of entries. So it's going to be very, very difficult to work out who's going to win it. Anyway, um, look, when reading the, the book, um, a couple of things came to mind to me. One, um, it's incredibly honest and open. Um, and in it, you know, Shane's very self-critical and, and maybe some would say too self-critical, but I think that's what makes it so refreshing or so refreshing to me anyway. Um, because it's, it's so honest. It's designed to help others. And secondly, I, and, and one of the reasons for the podcast today is uh, when I read it, I thought it was very, very applicable to life in general, some of the lessons, but also to business and, uh, our listeners, um, you know, our CEOs and brokers and fund managers and other interested parties and, and hence um, the chat today. Um, it comes as no surprise, I guess, that Shane's business um, that he's running with his wife, Lee, called Beyond Performance, um, looks to go into corporates and uh, and talk about some of these lessons. Um, and Shane will, will talk about that today. He's uh, worked with the likes of Westfield, um, Hawthorne AFL team, Sydney Thunder, um, and um, 
we'll talk about that in some detail. Shane, after that rather long-winded and clunky introduction, welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. Uh, it's, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for that very kind introduction. <laughs> no worries. Um, did you manage to spend a bit of time um, here over summer? I know you've done a lot of traveling in India in particular. Yeah, I did. Yeah, the whole um, summer has been off, which is which was really nice. I feel very fortunate that I can just sort of ring fence the the school holidays, the summer school holidays, to be able to spend as much time as I possibly can with with um, my my wife and my my two kids and my family because that is you know the most important thing in my life. Um, so the yeah the summer's been great to be able to spend at home here in Australia and just have some quality time in school holidays. Yeah, absolutely. You were in India for a couple of months, wasn't it? Over that, it was yeah. a long stint. It was. It was an awesome stint yeah. um, during the the one day World Cup in through October, November. Um, I was there for, gosh, nearly seven weeks um, going into the final as well. So that was an awesome time to be in India. I always enjoy my time in India because it's a, um, the epicenter of world cricket. So as any cricketer or a former cricketer, you want to be in and around it. But a World Cup when India were absolutely flying high up until the final, um, it was just the whole the whole country was just um, you know, fanatical and um, fully engaged in that World Cup. So And then to be there when Australia – turned it on and when they needed to was something very impressive in the final. Yeah, it had to be, I think, Pat Cummins' finest moment probably yeah. tactically. Just yeah. um, unbelievable. Yeah, um, fell in a place beautifully. Yeah, no, fantastic. And, and when do you go back for the IPL? So IPL will be um, commentating this um, season of IPL in, that'll be sort of end of March through okay. April, May. Not coaching this year? Not coaching this year. Okay. No, I was with Delhi Capitals for two seasons, but that's, um, that ended uh, interesting uh, it's all you know different different challenges that you'd have to navigate your way through politically um but it means i get to to commentate and spend time still there but um yeah i've got a couple of coaching gigs coming up with um the pakistan super league team that one of the teams that i played for in the pakistan super league quite gladiators i'm head coach of the of that franchise coming up um i leave on the 10th of feb um which will be a lot of fun to be able to go back and reconnect with um with the people of Pakistan, it's, I was very fortunate about to have some incredible experiences playing over there um, in 2019 and 2020. So I'm looking forward to getting back there as well. I think you're uh, MPV for one or both those seasons? For one of them, yeah. One of them, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, the, um, it was 20, 2019. Where that was an incredible experience. Um, I played I was fortunate to play well there, but then to be able to go back to to Pakistan for the first time for me from I was like 15, 14 years in between the first time I went and then that that time. So cricket um, in Pakistan is, is a huge, they, you know, the, the public are incredibly passionate, but they've been so starved of, of live cricket as well. So um, it's an amazing experience. All right, and final cricket question, the US League. Is yeah. it called, what's it called, the US? Major League Cricket. Major League MLC. Cricket. Yeah, yeah. MLC. You're, you're coaching a team there as well? Yeah, San Francisco yeah. Unicorns. When does that kick off? Is that Aaron so Finch's team? That's Aaron Finch, yeah. yeah he, um, he's retired from all cricket playing now, but that was the cap- team that he captained last year, the San Francisco Unicorns. It's a... Very much a, a very exciting market for cricket, um, for sure. There's a lot of expats, a huge undercurrent of cricket there that's not above the surface, but it's very much an undercurrent and it's got a huge following, um, especially from ep- expats from the subcontinent, first generation um, into the US. And uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate to be head coach of the San Francisco team as a um great players but also the the ownership and just how it's all all running is um exciting to be a part of on the on the growth phase 
All right, very good. Well, um, it will be the relief of some that we're not going to talk that much more about <laughs> yeah. cricket. Um, um, but look, what I'm going to ask you about is a meeting in 2015. I think this will take us on the on the journey we're going to talk about today. So you met with a guy by the name of Will Power. Many will know him as the Australian IndyCar um, champion. Mm. So, so where did that? Where did that? How did that meeting come about? And where did that? Um, you know, where did that lead to? Yes, that meeting came about. Um, at a random event that I've never been to before and never been since is the, the Dally M's Rugby League um, Awards. And I was presenting an award there and as was Will Power after he'd, he'd just won uh, the IndyCar Championship. So he was there to present one of the awards as well. And I was uh, fortunate to be sitting next to him. He's from Toowoomba. He grew up in Toowoomba, which is an hour west of um, Ipswich, where I grew up. Um, so I was just talking to him about how cool it must be to be a racing car driver. Um, and he very quickly opened up about that the fear that he actually he started to have um, and his body, even though he just won the IndyCar Championship, his body started to shut down. He had adrenal fatigue um, because he had f- since um, significant fear getting into the car because one of his best mates got um, killed in a race the month or so before. And, um, and that would be, uh, that was 20, that was 2015. And that had been nine months before one of my good mates and, and the cricket fraternity's best mates and really good mates, Phil Hughes got, got tragically killed in a, in a game as well. And that was the you know, different, that was the challenges that I was going through trying to deal with, um, for the first time, someone being killed, um, on the, on the cricket field. So. It very much and straight away, you know, I opened up about my fears that had crept into, had kept, well, not crept in, had come into my game from, from that moment onwards. And that was what Will was dealing with. And he was still getting in the car and, and still been able to perform, even though he was str- struggling mentally. Um, but he, he said that he was working with a guy, a mental skills, um, guru based in North Carolina in Charlotte. And he, his background was Formula One and, and, IndyCar, NASCAR and special forces and these people where if you, if these people make a mistake, it can be the difference between life and death. Um, and I was desperate because I was at a point where I was, my performances significantly spiraled, um, to a point where I was about, to, I was going to retire because I just couldn't access my skills that I had. And I was, I was felt like I was embarrassing myself at times because of my just performances were way below par. Um, so Will was very kind enough to connect me up with Dr. Jacques Delaire and I had a half an hour conversation with him deciding whether I should go and see him and the half an hour that I that I on the phone that I had just a couple of things that he that he talked about. I was like, okay, I need to I need to go and see this guy. I need to fly over to to Charlotte and spend a couple of days with him. And then those two days was information that I hadn't heard before in around mental performance. Jacques Delaire knew nothing about cricket at all. He knows about mental skills performance, how people, humans sabotage themselves, their performances mentally. Um, and everyone in the end, they sabotage their own performances in a very, very similar way. And so he educated me on this information and straight away on you, I could turn things around immediately. And that's, it took me six weeks of building these new mental skills habits. But once I did, then things turned around immediately and all those skills that had been suffocated for about nine months reappeared. You described this as the turning point, right? Oh. This, this meeting. Oh, that I, profound. Oh, that profound. Like immediately with a few points in particular that um, that he talked about 
it, I knew straight away that I absolutely could start controlling my, my mind to better access and create the right mental environment to access all the skills that I worked so hard um, that were deeply ingrained in me. And it was the first time where I actually really started to think about how I was thinking. Mm. Yeah. Whereas beforehand it was, I was very technically driven. That's because that's all the coaches also coached, but that's also how I then turned into that type of cricketer. Uh, but, and no one ever talked about the, the, the mental routines, what the mental skills that you needed and why you needed these different skills, even though there's a lot of sports psychologists and mental skills coaches around Australian cricket. It wasn't, they weren't around to be able to really to educate people on different on the right habits, the right mental skills habits, the right thought habits, the right thought routines to be able to consistently perform at your best and bring the very best version of you every time you're in the nets or you're practicing or you're in in the game when you needed to to perform under pressure. So it was that was the age of thirty four mm. after being playing professionally for fifteen years. It was. Um, it was so profound. Mm. And from then on, the next five years of playing was to prove that one age makes shouldn't make a difference to a skill game, um, but two was to implement these mental skills and refine them and work through all that information myself. And with that, that's where I you know, started the business with Jacques Delaire to be able to then start the education process um, of as many people as possible because this information – you should be taught this information at school, and, and, one, and one of the one of the things that I know he talks about is almost a. You, you touched on it there is that difference between skill set <laughs> and mindset, which, in my uneducated mind on these matters, just goes to why a, a sports person or an analyst or whoever in whatever profession can perform poorly, even though they've got the skills. <laughs> So the same skills today as they had last week, but today they might perform poorly, whereas last week they performed well and trying to understand why that happens. So I'd just love to, love to get your perspective yeah. on that. Yeah, it's it's the most important simple concept to get um, that's a part of all this information is just the, the really simple concept between skill set and mindset, um, how interrelated they are, but how separate they are as well. And the skill set is all the skills you work so hard to be able to develop, whether that's knowledge, whether that's from a from a cricket perspective, your the um, muscle memory that you just develop since you're a kid and always refining that muscle memory to be able to um, react instinctively in the right technical way. This, the other aspect is the mindset and which is the mental environment around these skills sitting. And that's where you could, you can have all the, you can have the skills, world-class skills, but if your mental environment, your mindset is corrupted and not where it needs to be, then your ability to be able to access those skills is significantly reduced to a point where sometimes you can't access them really at all. But then as soon as, your mental environment changes outside of performance, outside when you really need to perform, you can go the next day and you've got you got access to those skills immediately, straight away. Mm. And that's where people you see people in practice when there's no pressure, there's no um there's no consequences to the results, put up be able to perform really well and have all access to all those skills, knowledge, whatever, whatever industry domain you're in. But then as soon as it's time to step up and perform when there's actually something riding on your performance, that's majority of the time when the mindset shifts, mental environment shifts, and 
you can't access those skills. And then you go back the next day when there's no pressure again, bang, it's there. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was so profound to understand, well, gosh, if I, if I understand how to be able to create, create the right mindset, the right mental environment, then I should be able to access my skills that are so deeply ingrained every time I step out to perform, to train, but absolutely when the pressure's on, I need to perform. So all the information that I got taught after that, like, core concept is all around how to be able to create that right mindset, the the correct mental environment to for me to be able to access my skills every single time. So so let's dig into that a bit. And something you talk about in the book is is conscious mind versus unconscious mind, which once I read it, made a lot of sense to me. I never thought of it before, but once <laughs> I read it, I actually understood it. Um, and that's that's almost the core of the concept, isn't it? I found it really interesting and um, you know looking uh you know, looking at pressure situations, because whether it be, you know, batting or whether it be in business, often you haven't really got time to think in that millisecond. Mm. So, so run us through you, 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 the way you describe conscious mind versus unconscious mind, because yep. I think it'll go to other concepts such as using a gut feel and why that's mm-hmm. important, um, you know, making quick decisions when you need to. So yep. the difference between the two? Yeah. Uh, again, some profound um concepts there for me, for sure. And so the conscious, conscious, unconscious mind, um, the sort of analogy that's used in, in psychology is around the conscious and unconscious mind, there being an iceberg, the, the top of the iceberg that sits above the water is the conscious mind and the huge massive ice of the iceberg that's under the water is the unconscious mind. Um, and understanding just the the simple functions of the conscious mind, and these are absolutely proven functions of the conscious mind. And one of the most important ones is that you are in control of your conscious mind. So you are in control of your thoughts, which is incredibly important to understand. And I had no idea about that. I just allowed the environment around me to dictate how I thought. Yeah. I didn't actually grab control of it and redirect it if I if I needed to, if it was the wrong thoughts to have for me to be able to perform at my best. So you are in control of your conscious mind. And the other aspect to it is mind chatter, which is that internal dialogue that's happening every second just about with you inside inside your mind that internal dialogue that mind chatter is a conscious mind function which means that we are in control of that mind chatter if we want to take control and redirect that internal dialogue that internal conversation and redirect it to the right thoughts so for me for performance for example is for me at my best i'm not thinking about making a mistake don't get out don't stuff up now's not a good time to get out from a cricket perspective, and you can you can put that in any aspect of performance. Yeah. That's the wrong thoughts for me. So if I listen in and I can hear that mind chatter, I can hear that those conversations being had, then I've just, I grab it and redirect it to no, when I'm at my best, this is what I think. Because if you because you only think of one thing at once, right? That, that was one thing that jumped out to me, which yep. makes sense. Your conscious mind thinks of one thought at once. That's it. So if you can replace that bad thought <laughs> with a good thought. I mean, you've got to be well ahead. You solve the problem. It's not a guarantee you're going to perform in whatever you're doing, but it must give you a better chance because then the doubt isn't creeping in. That's it. Um, that the unconscious mind, I, I likened mm. in a way to, and this is, you know, there's there's many a volume of psychological books written on this, I'm sure, but it's just the way I think about it, is gut feel kind of mm. grabs and takes, 
work from your unconscious mind and you make a decision. How do you make the decision on gut feel? Well, it's your 20 years of doing whatever you've been doing, whether it be in business or the sporting field. Um, we just interviewed Mark Hutchinson, who's the uh, head of Fortescue Future Industries, very senior, very impressive guy. And he talks about the importance of gut feel. Do your homework, do what you need to do, but when it comes to the crunch, You've just got to try and bring all your past experience and talent, which is in your unconscious mind, and make a decision. That's it. The unconscious mind is that gut feel. Is It's your internal computer putting all of that experience that you've had throughout your life that you've been putting into that internal computer and just putting it together, working out what the right actual answer is, and it pops up. It just pops up. If you create the right space and you're not overthinking the situation, you allow the space to be able to allow that decision to come up and then you trust it, that's the best decision right at that moment in time that you have got. And that's what gut feel is is absolutely all about. You can't articulate it because if you were going to articulate it, you'd have to go through the 20 years of all your different experiences to be able to then come to that answer. It's going to take quite a while to work out exactly how you got to that answer. If you're processing that with your conscious mind and going, oh, well, that's the reason why I've come to that answer. So it's incredibly hard to articulate why you've got to that answer, but that's the power of your unconscious mind. If that gut feel is just that internal computer, just processing that information in really nearly a split second and just popping up with that answer. And how many times when you've trusted your gut, it's not emotion, it's not an ego, it's not the emotion. You've got to understand the very like, fine balance between emotion making a decision and your gut feel what you feel is the right thing. But you tap into that gut feel every single time you fully trust that and then commit to what you feel. It's absolutely the right decision with all the information that you've got right there and then. Let's move on to confidence. And you know, I've heard and read a lot about your views around confidence and, and how that relates to results. Um, and you know, like I think we all naturally feel better when the results are good, um, whether that's on the sporting field or picking the right companies to invest in and, mm-hmm. and it's terrific. You get the result, you feel good. It's kind of the easy part, but mm-hmm. there's a flip side and that's, of course, when things don't go well and the results aren't good, you, you naturally lose your confidence. The thing that jumped out to me is actually that's when you need your confidence the most. <laughs> so things don't go right. That's when you need more confidence, but naturally you're so hell-bent on the result, mm. you feel terrible. Um, now, our investment director, Nathan Parkin, often says, you know, if you like a company at a dollar, you've done your homework, you've got to like it more at 90 cents, and you've got to like it even more at 80 cents, you've got to like it more at 70 cents, even though you feel terrible. Don't lose your confidence at that moment because that's when you really make money mm. for your clients. And, and you talk about that. Um, as well, and you actually say, well, you say something, confidence cannot be about results, um, which made me think a lot. You gave some examples too, and we promised we weren't going to talk too much about cricket, but anyway, (laughs) probably the best example I saw was that Shane Warne, 50% of the time, um, got two wickets or less in an innings when he bowled. Now, I would have thought the best spin bowler in the world, two wickets or less, probably not that terrific. Um, But it just goes to show if your confidence is about results, you bound to be losing confidence all the time because you can't get good results all the time, no matter what you do. Yep. If we can pick 55% of our stocks right, we, we probably get a good outcome. That's 45% wrong. Yep. Um, just talk us through that the whole concept of of how you should be focused around confidence, i.e. not results. Yep. The, the most important thing is we know – everyone knows individually is when they're at their very best, they are, f- they are full of confidence. They are high on confidence. That's when they are performing at their best. 
So understanding how important that is, then everyone in general society bases their confidence around how they've been going, mm. what the results have been like. So if the results have been good, as you mentioned, then you're flying high, you're, you're, um, you're bulletproof, doesn't matter. You just, if, even if you have a couple of bad performances, you're like, that's fine. I'm sweet. I know where I'm going. Whereas on the flip side is if you haven't had some good results, then your confidence does absolutely start to spiral and get, and get worse and worse. And, and knowing how important that confidence for you to be at your very best, you've got to have your confidence got to be very high, but because society in general bases everything around and confidence around results, but for us to be at our very best, we need to tap into like the absolute 100% confidence every single time we need to perform. So the biggest challenge is how do we do that? Well, the biggest way to be able to do that is being based our basing our confidence around a different thing. Yes. Because results are going to go up and down. You don't like in the markets, for example, you could be 100% confident that this is absolutely the right company to invest in, but there's different aspects and factors that have come in, which have actually meant that, that the results haven't been as good as what everyone predicted yeah. with the research you've done, but you have done all the work, you've done everything you possibly could to be able to give yourself the best chance of that being a really good investment. So from a performance perspective, the confidence is based around, has to be based around, did I give myself the very, very best chance? Did I tick every single box that I possibly could with my preparation? But then also when I need to, when I'm in the performance, when I need to perform, then I'm one focused on the right things. I'm in control because I'm in control of my conscious mind. I'm taking control of that and, my thoughts are the right thoughts at the right time. Did I did I fully commit to that as well and control the things I'm in control of? And then if you've ticked every single box that you possibly can, that's what confidence has to be based around. And that's because there are these other factors that are absolutely out of our control. For example, you could bring, and we could bring the very, very best of us when it comes to, um, I'll talk from a cricket perspective, I could bring the very, very best version that I possibly can. But there is a other factor outside of my control, like um, the conditions right at that moment in time just does not suit my game right there and then or I get a bad umpire decision or the opposition's actually just better than me on that day right there and then. These are the factors that are out of your control that even though you've brought the very, very best of what you got, it means you're not going to get the results you're looking for. But then there's also the flip side of that where you can actually not be your very, very best. You've taken some shortcuts in your preparation. Even when you're about, you need to perform, you haven't really fully controlled your thoughts to the right things at the right time. But there's been these factors that just fallen your way and they've just fallen into your lap and the results, you've shot the lights out. But that's where your confidence has to be based around. Did I bring the very, very best that I can? And then your critiquing after those performances has to be solely based around that. Mm. So mm. focus and preparation effectively, to summarise that. Absolutely. Yeah. The focus on what is my focus when I need to perform? Mm. Is it the correct focus? Um, is it the right thoughts at the right time when I need to perform? And then absolutely ticking every box that you possibly can in your preparation. And that's where you build that confidence and knowing that you need to step into that confident version of yourself when you're in your performance because you know that's giving yourself the best chance of getting the best results that you can. Because I think too, if you, and you touched on this, but if you focus on results to assess your performance, you may well have actually got lucky in, in the reverse way. 
Mm-hmm. So you may have actually fronted up against bowlers or conditions or you might have got lucky. Mm-hmm. So you're going, yep, tick, I'm really confident. But you haven't had the preparation well and you go to the next game or you go to the next situation. You don't do your homework. You don't model the stock properly. You don't do your industry research. And then you go you go horribly wrong. So mm-hmm. I, I found it fascinating. Focus yep. and preparation. Yep. Um, and that, of course, leads to your performance Equation. Yeah. We're getting very mathematical here. Yeah, very. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, and I think you said, and I quote, you might not remember you said this, but you did, apparently. Once I understood the performance equation, it had a profound impact on me. Oh, yeah. It, it lifted this humongous weight that had been just gradually getting bigger and bigger and heavier since I was a kid. So the performance equation is simply it's A times B equals results. Very complicated mathematical equation. (laughs) Um, And once I actually deeply understood it, oh, this huge pressure just leapt off me. And what that equation is, the the A times B, so the A is the A factors, all the factors that are in our control in our control, what skills we've got right there and then, what our fitness is, what our preparation's been like, um, how committed we are at that moment in time because we get to choose that, whether we really are committed and we really want to make a difference, um, what we're focused on. Also, that's something we're in control of because we are in control of our conscious mind. So there are all the A factors, everything that we are in control of. The B factors, so the A times B, the B is all the things that are out of your control. As I mentioned before, just whether it's from a cricket perspective, the umpiring decisions or the, and in the investing game, the market conditions, positive, negative, um, whether it's what your competitors do, whether they're willing to sort of push the legal limit to be able to try and um, challenge things. So the B factors are the factors that are out of your control. There's positive and negative ones. But by understanding A times B equals results, because you can't control B, the B factors, it means you can't control results, which for me, that was the most profound thing about the whole equation is I always believed growing up that A equals results. Mm -hmm. If I worked hard enough, if I pushed myself to the limit to develop my skills, then that should guarantee me results. And then on a weekend when I didn't get the results I was looking for because there was a B factor that got him away that I didn't didn't even compute that there was actually a B factor that could get him away the results, then I'd just go, well, I'm not working hard enough. So I've got to go back and work even harder. But as soon as I realized that there are B factors that I can – I can't use an excuse. I've got to prepare for them, the negative ones. So then if one pops up during a performance, I can navigate it smoother and try and not let it have a, a significant impact on the end result. But if I just got to be aware that there are going to be some B factors and out, out of my control that I can't I can't do anything about. Well, it changes your whole way of self-assessment, right? Absolutely. Um, rather than just working through the maths and looking at average and saying average this season versus last season is yep. this or, um, again, same on an investment um, perspective. I mean, ultimately, you've got to get the stocks right eventually mm-hmm. Or you've got to score runs or yep. you've got to take wickets or do what you need to do. Ultimately, you need to do that over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you just give yourself the best chance to do so. It doesn't guarantee that because we're all results-driven, um, but it pays not to have a constant results focus. Yep. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. That That is such an important difference that – the environments, the individuals within the team environments that are results-driven are the, are the team environments and the individuals which will do everything they can 
to get the best results I possibly can. Mm. Tick every single box. <clears throat> Learn from every experience. What went right? What went wrong? How can I get better at it? To be able to then compound that, that those learnings as well after every performance, you compound those over a couple of years and goodness me, you, you start improving a lot. Um, so the results driven is you're doing everything you possibly can. That doesn't build stress and anxiety and worry. The individuals and team environments that does build the stress, anxiety and worry is all around when the f- results focused, all they care about. And I've been there so many times is obsessed about results. I need to, I need to perform today. I need to get these runs. I need to get these results. And as soon as you're not getting the results you desire and you're looking for, then that's when worry and stress and anxiety, everything builds up to a point where individually you implode in a team environment. You absolutely, that that team environment implodes as well. So there's such an important to understand those, that's the difference between results driven, giving yourself the very, very best chance that you possibly can results, focus, stress and anxiety and worry just build up. And then that's, that can last, that can work for a short period of time in a team environment and as an individual, but over a, a, an extended period of time, bang, it implodes every time. Actually, Lisa, my next question, how, how do you, <laughs> how do you put this theory into practice um, in all the, the teams that you've coached and, mm. um, and, and so on? Yep. As a head coach, it makes it very easy because that's all I instill from day one. When I first um, come in and I've taken over, the first steps that I put in place is making sure everyone understands the, this information as a starting point. Because, And then all the language that I use around it is doing everything you can to give yourself the best chance and then learning from the different experiences that you have individually or as and as a team. And in, in your book, actually, just a bit of an aside, you talk about the effectiveness of a communication language. You won't go into, into it today, <laughs> but actually just saying a few words is actually a minority. Mm. It's your actions, the way you say it, when you look yep. at someone. I, I, again, I found that really insightful as well. Anyway, absolutely. Sorry, I've taken you off track there. No, no, but absolutely. And that's and that's all part of the be, the challenge for, for me as a, as a head coach is when the – when the results haven't been what the team wants on that day, it's breaking it down. So, and when I do the, you know, when the team does the debrief that you try and do it. So your emotion doesn't change that much. It's a similar emotion the whole time. It's very pragmatic around reviewing the game and debriefing the game is ticking these, how do we go with this, this, and this, and what can we do differently, better? Can we do anything differently or better? But keeping the same, body language, the same energy, the same tone in my voice because people see it through it immediately because of the communication and how you how people communicate. Majority is done through the body language and a part of and a, and a part of that is also the tone of your voice. Mm. The words play a part if they need to a very specific part, if you're talking about specific things, but it's more so your body language and your tone of your voice that actually communicates the most. And that's why debriefs are so important for me when I'm debriefing with the group to make sure that it's again it's it's all around the did you do what were the A's did you did we as a group and individually bring the very best A's that we could and if we didn't what can we do individually and as a team to be able to bring it better and to get as close to ten out of ten as we can in the next game in the next performance and and dealing with major disappointments so from a You've kind of answered the question a little bit from a team point of view, maybe from a personal point of view, mm-hmm. dealing with major disappointments. Um, 
maybe how did you deal with them prior to <laughs> your meeting yeah. with Jacques and yeah. post, just by way of example? Yeah, like but, just bring it to life for people? Yeah, absolutely. The before and after is so stark a contrast. <laughs> um, I was a I was a huge warrior because I worried about results. I was desperate for results. So beforehand, if I didn't have a good um, tournament, a good series, for example, or a good couple of games, then I'd really start to, oh, this, this is my chance. I don't want to get dropped. Um, if I get dropped, this is going to change like my lifestyle. My life's going to change. What am I going to do? Um, so that was, that was beforehand. Whereas, after was one listening into those thoughts as soon as I started to have those because those were my default <laughs> was to worry was um, okay what happened why did it happen and map out what what happened and then why did it happen and what are the things I can do in the lead up to the next tournament the next games to be able to learn from those mistakes or learn from those things that happened to be able to just try and do them better in the next, in the next performance or the next series that I played in. And straight away that just shifted me. And there's two questions that were just so again, profound around before and after um, was when is worrying about results made the results better? Yeah. And I was, I was a, I was a master at worrying. Well, worrying about results never made them better. It's never. And when is worrying about failing ever made failure less likely? Well, never either. It's going to happen or it's not, even whether you worry about it. But we waste so much mental energy alone worrying about things that have happened or might happen that that are out of our control. We don't know actually what's going to happen because we don't know what the B factors are going to be. And for me, straight away, by understanding those two questions alone made me just pragmatically if it didn't things didn't go exactly to plan and I didn't get the performances that I wanted was just breaking it down okay well there's no point worrying about it I've just got to learn from it and breaking it down as what happened why did it happen and then what can I do in the lead up to the next performance or the next series to be able to do it better and give myself a better chance because worrying uh, worrying and um, you know worrying about every different component like you just talked about then is actually pretty exhausting because you get it just ties you out and mentally and I think probably physically as well, but mm. certainly mentally. And it, is, that, is that what you found particularly in, in test matches when you used to get to 30, 40, 50, was the ability to switch off or inability to switch off at the time? Do you think it was a factor? Because if you look at your your stats and results and results now post-fact, mm. you know, one days and shorter format games, results seemingly were stronger than test results. Yeah. Test matches go longer and there's so much more perhaps mental energy burnt. Time to think. Yep. Um, time to think. That's right. Whether <laughs> yep. you're waiting to bat or you're yep. off the field or whatever it is. I mean, do, yep. d- does it go back to that? I mean, how, how many test matches did you play post the meeting with Shark? I don't have the Unfortunately, none. Okay. Yeah. And that's and that's the – I was able to – and I wasn't able to test it out with one-day cricket, but I absolutely was able to test it out before and after um, with T20 cricket. But that's the one thing that I look back in, um, on my test career. And one of the things I know if I did it better and I did it differently, then I would have, I would have been able to perform for longer periods of time, perform my skill. Whether that meant the results were going to be better than what they were, I think they would have been, but you just don't know. 
But uh, and that's the one thing that I knew was probably one of my biggest issues, and I see it now with the people, all the people, majority of people that I work with now as well, whether it's within a team environment or individuals, is around mental energy, about conserving your mental energy, because there's so much overstimulation in society nowadays as well. Let alone then our ability and our skill to overthink and and just burn out that mental energy. And one of the concepts that I got taught, which um, is so important to understand is that your, your brain is like a muscle. You've got a certain amount of energy every day that you have. And if as soon as you, you've burnt that through that mental energy, that's when you get brain fatigue, you get um, brain fade and you start making errors, whether that's from a cricket perspective, your um, technical, you make technical errors um, and decision, split decision, um, instinct um, errors. And, but then that's, I hadn't, no concept of that at all. And that's where through my test career, I'd get to 30, 40, 50, a lot of the time without too many problems. But because I just burnt through my mental energy at the start of the, as soon as I woke up and then in the morning before the game started and then walking out to bat and then when I wasn't actually, didn't need to be focused on the ball coming down, I was I was on. I was fully engaged. Today has to be my day. Come on, switch on. You need to. This is a big moment. This is a big game. So I did not have the understanding and the technique to be able to switch on and switch off, to be able to have the techniques to be able to then just conserve my mental energy. So I, I had enough at the right times to execute my skill for longer periods of time. And based on what you know now, what are some of the ways people can switch off, or you found that you can switch off, or what you saw others do so well? Yep. So the the main the main technique that I used was putting a song into my head. That's my way, and I do it now in all like all aspects of my life. Is when I need to put my mind on neutral, so I'm just got one thought is put a song into my head, and that's the way for me to be able to just put my mind on neutral. And I remember asking um, Shark about it because Glenn McGrath mentioned. I remember talking to him um, when I was when I was 20, talking about, like, what are you thinking when you're down at fine, fine leg? He goes, oh, I've just got a song in my head. I'm just singing a song down at fine leg. And then when I come up to bowl my first ball of my over, I just got to, I'm just singing a song. I've got it sort of mapped out of what I'm going to bowl. And, um, and he was pretty good sustaining performance for his whole career. Um, and performance over a five day test match, for example, Michael Clark was someone who also had a song in his head. And that's the way for, that he um, was able to just put his mind on neutral. Other techniques that people use are breathing. So Alan Border, that was his way of being able to um, sustain his concentration for longer periods of time was focus on his breathing in between balls. And that was his way of putting his mind on neutral. Because in the end, it's like me- meditating is all about one thought. I was, was going to say that my, my wife's just done a meditation course and mm. I, I do some meditation. And one of those aspects is um, getting your mantra. Mm, and it. it just goes goes through and continues. And actually, Gandhi um, – so I'm kind of reading that as well. He, he he mentioned that as a great steadier. So you need a steadying influence mm. to build and do other things from. And one of those was his mantra that he actually got told to him, I think, by some person, someone will know who's listening, um, when he was very, very young. And he'd mm. go back to that and revert to that constantly. Yep. And he actually said it's like a it's like an elephant. If you if you have an elephant walking through the markets in India and they're swinging their trunk around everywhere, they're hitting everything and they're all over the place and it causes chaos. But if you give an elephant a bunch of bamboo, it'll put it in its trunk, wind it up and walk through the, the market um, seamlessly. And that's mm. why 
um, in some villages and maybe it's still the case, but certainly when he was growing up, that's why elephants would be carrying things through, not to carry things to get for, for the for the owner, but actually to, mm. to steady them on the way through. I thought that was quite a good analogy. And that's, yeah. I guess, similar, isn't it? Yep. You just put something in your head and it relaxes you. And, and then yep. how do you switch back on? Well, then it's understanding what your um, thought, your sequence of thoughts are when you when you need to switch on. So, and everyone's different in, in your own domain, in your own skill set that you have, but then it's understanding when are the times that you need to put your mind on neutral and then when's the right times to be able to actually put certain thoughts or the right thoughts or have no thoughts in a way um, to be able to then perform at your very best. So for me, it was the, me understanding like every ball that I faced at every moment when the bowl was walking back to his mark to get ready to bowl another ball is what my thoughts needed to be, what the right thoughts were as up until the bowler then released the ball. So it's understanding what the sequence of thoughts is for you to be able to then switch switch back on. And that routine, that, that's, that's the routine. We all see yep. it in the sporting field. I, I think as individuals, many people, most maybe, actually work well to a routine. You, yep. you get up in a certain way, you do this, you prepare. You, it's almost like all those other, those things just go in your peripheral and you feel comfortable and then when it matters you can focus your thoughts on that element yep. that matters, whatever that might be, yep. markets or or on the sporting field or whatever. Yeah. A um, couple of things I want to talk to you about, given you've had a lot of experience in both of these and I think it would be relevant for the audience and they're all kind of related as well, is social media. We're talking about burning mm. energy and being distracted and mm. so on. Any messages to young people around social media and how best to deal with some of the challenges there? <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, it's understanding that by – a great way to overstimulate your mind and burn through your mental energy is by scrolling through social media, whether it's like on your phone, um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that, but also you know, YouTube, that sort of those social media platforms where it does overstimulate your mind. There's a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, and if you want to try and maintain your, your mental energy, then you've got to one, try and avoid that or, or do it only to a small, um, small degree. But when it comes to advice around social media, um, for any young person, it's, and especially like uh, cricketers that I, that I work with in particular, it's one, absolutely don't read the comments. Use it for what you want to use it for. So, and, and I use social media, whether it's, um, Instagram or especially YouTube for education. Yep. To be able to learn new, learn new skills and find new information that I, that I want to learn. Outside of that, I don't use it. I don't, I certainly do not look at the comments. I don't click on the notifications. I don't look at anything because I don't need any outside influence trying to corrupt my, where my head's at. I know exactly where, where I'm at, what I'm doing, um, where my confidence levels are at. I don't need anyone outside of that, good or bad, because you can get positive um, feedback, which you don't actually necessarily meet, need, and you become overconfident. You think you're bulletproof when you're actually, when you're not. But then on the downside, you could see, you could read a thousand good comments and there's one that's a negative one, and that's the one that penetrates your bubble and gets deep inside and often of you. Very, very personal. Very personal. So I, I absolutely recommend the, t- recommend the techniques is just to not, not read the comments. Use it for whatever you want to use it for. If you want to educate yourself or get updated on certain things, but absolutely don't engage with the comment side of things because that's when it will really start to infiltrate your mindset. It'll get in the way of your confidence, absolutely, which means that you're not bringing the very best version of you. And and how did you operate um, at your best in the media spotlight as well? That's a mm-hmm. whole other dimension. I think 
in company CEOs will be interested mm. in your thinking there because not only have you got to make best decisions for yourself and your team and your company, but you've got to make those decisions thinking about how they may be perceived and then mm. having to front up to a newspaper article or a or a whatever else. So just lessons you learned there. Well, my way of dealing was it, uh, with it was to not read the media um, because, again, I just didn't need any outside influence who really didn't know the deep details of exactly what was going on to infiltrate where, where I was at. Um, I understand that in the public domain, people want to know certain certain things. And even though I didn't read the media, I had to be, if I was going to do the media for the day, I had to understand that what the stories were out there and then how to be able to nav- navigate my way through them um, when I got asked about them. But my way of personally dealing with it and different people are different ways. Some people just scoured the, the internet for articles on themselves to be able to just know what's going on, which most of the time it that would come to a like a, a crashing <laughs> hole. Yeah. yeah, it is a bad end. Um, whereas mo- a lot of the people just just don't try not to read it. Navigate that situation as well as I possibly can. What um, how things are perceived, what they might look like, and trying to do it to the best of your ability with the information that you have. Mm. But you, in the end, you just got to be you got to be true to yourself. But when it all boils down to it, you want to do what you have to do to be able to perform your best consistently, and most of the time that involves putting like a cocoon around you and a bubble around you. So, so the wrong things can't penetrate that bubble at all. And that takes discipline. It certainly takes. And sometimes you get that information because some, your mum, dad, or your one of your friends rings up and goes, Oh, what's happening there? Or did you know what so-and-so said about that? But that's where just creating that cocoon around you. So the wrong things can't come in, which could just sort of affect your mindset. So you don't bring the best version of you to, to the next performance. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, back to mental toughness. Who was the mentally toughest player you played with or against? Um, I would say I was lucky to play with like <laughs> some incredibly tough um, cricketers and performers. Well, Shane Warne was probably the, the mentally toughest person that I played um, with. His ability to shut out anything that's going on off the field, and there was always some some chaos around him at times with his um, off-field life. His ability to be able to shut that out and just focus on every single moment to bring the very best that he can, he could, and that's the reason why he finished at his still at his very very peak. Um, Glenn McGrath was very much along those lines as well. Um, Ricky Ponting and Matt Hayden were two of the other guys who really stood out for guys who just knew they developed the skill. It wasn't, they weren't that way always, um, for example, but when they really, they knew what, how to be able to bring that mental toughness to be able to just allow to create that bubble around them. So nothing could penetrate. None of that white noise, none of the wrong thoughts could come in. They just zeroed in on what they needed to do and just do it over and over again, moment by moment that's when nothing seemed to penetrate their bubble. And um, those four guys in particular were incredibly mentally tough. So you mentioned there that it's a learned skill. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a baseline and everyone's got a different baseline, but you can learn mental toughness. I guess yep. the key question is, how do you develop better mental toughness yep. in your experience? Because I think we could all do with a bit yep. um, uh, of well, toughening up um, for obvious reasons. Yeah, well – the ultimate thing in all mental skills, the ultimate thing is to be able to be, and you, what you want to be known as is being mentally tough. 
And I never knew what that meant. I always want, like I grew up watching Steve Waugh and he was like the most mentally tough cricketer from Australian perspective. And I just, if Australia was in trouble, trouble, he always knew, found a way to get the Australians out of trouble. So he was always like the the sort of number one mentally tough um, cricketer growing up. And I just, I always thought, how, how can I do that? I want to be that. I want to be mentally tough, but how, is it just something you, you're born with it? Is it something you just, the circumstances align and you just fall into it and go, geez, that's good. I'm, well, I'm just going to keep doing that. And most of the mentally tough pe- people that I've mentioned, they just, the circumstances aligned, their own circumstance, their life aligned to a point where they discovered it and they go, oh, that's good. I'm just going to keep doing that. I'm just going to keep doing it over and over again. But for everyone else, the circumstances might not line up (laughs) to be able to create the perfect storm to be able to find what works. But the definition that I got explained, and it's absolutely what we're all chasing, is mental toughness is being focused on the task at hand. What I need to do right now when there is chaos all around you. What do I need to be focused on right now? The focusing on the task at hand. And so creating that bubble around you so nothing can come in. So once I understood that, I was like, well, I can do that. It's going to take like a lot of discipline, a lot of work to keep catching the wrong thoughts and just redirecting back to this is the right thoughts at this time for me to be able to execute my skill to the best of my ability and keep just catching those thoughts and bringing it back to what I need to do right now. And that absolutely is attainable to everyone. It takes a lot of work and a lot of discipline and it takes years of being able to keep working through how do I catch those thoughts to be able to bring it back to what I need to do, what the most important thing is right now. But it's absolutely attainable for, to everyone. And what are some of the rules and approaches that, that you can take to get some way there? So for, for me, that's understanding what the wrong thoughts are. So writing down what the wrong thoughts are that get in the way of my best performance. And knowing that as soon as I as soon as I hear that one of those thoughts, bang I to catch it and redirect it back to the right thought. So for me it was well, my default is putting a song into my head. So worst case scenario, that's a great default, but then I need to be correctly focused when I need to when I needed to execute my skill as well. So understanding what the wrong thoughts are when you aren't at your best. So the thoughts you have then, then by just defining those, that's your way of listening in, or that's the wrong thought, that's not me my best, and just keep bringing it back to the right thoughts. This is what I need to do. This is what my thoughts are when I'm at my very best, so I just need to keep pulling myself back to that. And you keep doing that over and over again, and that's why it is an internal battle. It's an inner battle that you're fighting every single day to be able to be as mentally tough as you can by just redirecting if there's any outside influence, any outside thoughts, any outside simulation that's getting in your way from you being very present and this is what I need to do, then that's the skill. What I found really interesting was your um, your seven rules. Yeah. Um, it's in the new edition too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Good. The new yeah. edition the new edition is exactly the same apart from an um a chapter which has case studies on 10 or 10 cricket cricketing legends. Oh, fantastic. So case studies on, because I did a podcast. Yeah, the podcast is um, unreal. Lessons learned with the greats. Yeah. And they one of the questions I asked was around what their mental techniques were, mental skills techniques. So it's me sort of just talking through how they use their mental skills techniques and putting it into the context of the information in the book. 
Very good. All right. Well, maybe we won't go through um, every one of the rules, but Shane summarised those. I'd recommend people get the book and go through them because actually, I don't know, I, I like um, kind of lists of things because then you can kind of remember what to do and mm. um, they're essentially summarised by, uh, by Shane there. So um, the seven rules. Yep. Um, of the mental road. Yep, easy. Very so, good. Right. I, can, I can quickly just go through them quickly. Yeah, go for it. Go so, for it. Go for it, please. Um, rule number one is you need. It's all, it's all about mind chatter. So rule number one is the first thing you must do is when you're starting to dig, mentally dig, is put down the shovel. So that's all around the the mind chatter is the mental digging that you're starting to get the shovel in your hand. You're failing away. So you need to be aware that you've got the shovel in your hand. You need to put down the shovel. So there's all those negative thoughts like, um, yep. oh, this guy's too good for me, or um, oh, I've got all, I've got the last four stocks wrong. My analysis is going to be wrong, and the modelling's wrong, and those numbers are wrong. Just stop that. That's it. Right so up. that's number one. Number, number two one. is your mind can actively only process one thought at a time. And that was so profound for me. That was a, immediately by understanding rule number two. I knew I could turn things around straight away because I knew what the right thoughts were when I was at my best. So I just had to put the right thoughts in because when the right thoughts were in, the wrong thoughts couldn't come in. So um, rule number three is you can't not think about whatever is on your mind. In other words, don't think about making a mistake. Don't think about bowling a wide. Don't think about stuffing up because – when you think, don't think about it, you're telling yourself, to, don't think about it, you are thinking about it. It's more chance of actually making that mistake. Um, rule number rule number four is your dominant thought, so your main thought influences your performance and your emotions and everything around it. So that And that's all around understanding your unconscious mind. The power of the unconscious mind is whatever thoughts that you put into your conscious mind significantly influences your ability to access your unconscious mind, which is where our best performances sit. Um, rule number five is that you are in control of your conscious mind. So just about every touch point throughout the whole book comes down. There's a lot of it's brought back to you are in control of your conscious mind. So make the most of that control that we actually do have. And therefore you're in control of your dominant thought. That's it. Absolutely. Rule number six is the perspective rule, the glass half full, glass half empty. The same glass, but depending on what your perspective is, dictates actually how how you think, whether it's actually like optimistic or whether it's pessimistic. And that also had a profound effect on me. Perspective on and the the tragic event that happened was very profound. And the last rule, number seven, is if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always gotten. So if you do what you've been doing, but you approach it with a different mental approach, with a different way of thinking around it, thinking about how you think around your performance, then you'll get some different outcomes, different results, better results. Well done. And just um, for everyone's knowledge here, Shane did not look at any notes for those, so um, lives it and breathes it. Very impressive. Um, now, this all, of course, leads to the secret source, the ACT model. Oh, yeah. Can you take us through it? <laughs> So the ACT model is an acronym and it's it's all really just around deeply defining your very best performance. And the whole, all the mental skills information that is in this book, it's all a culmination into understanding what the very best version of you looks like. So then once you've defined it, you've deeply defined it from a mental perspective then you know exactly what you're chasing, the version of you you're chasing every single time that you step in to perform. So that for me beforehand, I look, I, I had an awareness of what I, how I was at my best, but I, I didn't deeply define it. Technically, I deeply defined it, 
but absolutely not mentally. So the ACT model is an acronym. The A is your A-game attributes, so defining your A-game attributes. The C is the compare and critique. So after every performance is for the 10 out of 10, the very best version of me, how was I against today compared to my attributes when I was at my very, very best. So my first, um, from a cricket perspective, my first word in my ACT model is calm. And that's all around me being, putting my mind on neutral, a song in my head. So 10 out of 10 is me being calm, being not asleep, but not being over overthinking a situation in the lead up to the game and enduring it. So how was I today compared to, was I 10 out of 10 when I was at my very, very best or was I seven? And what was the gap? Where was the difference and what can I do in the next performance to get as close as I can to 10 out of 10? Mm. And the T, the T in the ACT is the self-talk to listen in, to then listen in, to say the right things inside your mind to transform yourself from you into the super version of you. So that's where the T comes in. So ACT model, but I'll keep coming back to it. Most people don't define the very best version of themselves from a mental skills perspective. And then once you do, you know exactly what you're chasing every time you, you go into to perform. Work towards, right? That's it. Um, I liked your, your magic camera reference. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the magic camera would show us some shocking stuff, I reckon, for all of us. Um, <laughs> it's actually a good way, to, good way to think of it. Yeah, what would your magic camera see? Um, I guess this is a good segue to be on performance, mm. say business. So you, yep. you really, from what I can gather, um, bring all this to play in a corporate environment. Um, mm. So tell us a bit about Beyond Performance. Yeah, so Beyond Performance is it's just an, an education um, business to be able to just get this information out to as many people as as possible. Whether it's um, the corporate in the corporate world, whether it's through schools and and sporting clubs, sporting organisations, because the one thing that I do know through my experiences of growing up here in Australia is these very simple to understand mental skills are just not taught, and they should be taught at a really young age. So then we're only developing quality, good mental skills habits. So then when we get older, we get into our teens and in our 20s, then we just understand how to be able to create the right mental environment for us to be able to perform consistently at our best and especially when the pressure's on and we need to perform. Uh, so so the, the workshops are all around just education um, on this information, just to be able to make sure that everyone is up to speed, understanding how to be able to just bring the very best version of themselves every time they need to perform. But then also how to be able to debrief after a performance, how to be able to actually understand how to bring like 100% confidence when their performances, when the results haven't been, haven't been at their best. So I do workshops, but also one on one on ones, act model development workshops and that as well, because, um, that's also incredibly important that most people don't define the very best version themselves. So, um, I just feel very fortunate to have had Jacques Delaire come into my life at a certain time at that 34 to educate me on this information to be able to put that into play, put that into practice while I was playing, but then also mentor me to upskill me to be able to then teach this information, to pass on this knowledge to as many people as I possibly can, because I just know how profound this information is to everyone who is able to, who's, who's actually been touched by this information. 
Yeah, because I think often we, we deal with the consequences or problems of mental health issues or stresses or pressures without actually looking at the front end. So we're, we're getting better at dealing with the back end, better, not perfect, but um, it's almost prevention in a way, whatever it is prevention, mm. getting people to act in the right way um, for ultimately for them as individuals and then for um, for the company they work for yep. to be more effective. Um, Absolutely. And that's why the two of the most essential life skills that we're just not taught, which are two of the biggest issues in society is mental skills, about how to be able to perform at our best and get out of our, out of our own way, and two is financial literacy. Mm. I don't understand why they're not taught at schools or taught all these other things that sometimes you use again, sometimes you don't, whereas these things are <laughs> – you're using them all the way through your whole life. And, and, and what have you what have you learned? Well, I mean, what's your investment philosophy and what have you learned from business-wise? You, you get seen or you get shown a number of opportunities, mm. I, I would imagine, um, both here and – on the subcontinent as well. What, what What's your overall philosophy? How do you think about business, investing, um, other businesses you've had and what have you? Yeah, so from an investing perspective, I was incredibly naive. I had absolutely no idea. I wasn't taught at all. My family, my mum and dad um, never, you know, talked to me about investing in the share market, for example. Um, they just, they were in land and, and property as, um, and made the most of what they could. So it wasn't until my early 30s where I started to started to read up a lot more on the philosophies of investing. And um, so now it's more so just understanding what, what I'm looking for, what I was looking for when it comes to having trusted people invest my money. Um, and then there's all the, the pitfalls that are, that are there, which I experienced a couple. Um, but I was just so naive, like even in around the um, GFC in 2008, I'd invested in and it obviously went down significantly and I had no idea. I just thought, geez, I don't know enough about this. So I got out stupidly. I missed like 17, 80% increase <laughs> compounding <laughs> over the next yeah. 10 years, just about. So, um, but now I've got more of an understand, more of an understanding of what the right things are to do. And when it comes to business, I've just more than anything, I've just learned the learned the hard way of what not to do, uh, <laughs> which is the best way to learn. Like if you you got to make the most of those lessons that you have, um, and just try and surround myself and surround myself with people who really are much are smarter than me, who can give me the as good advice as they can at that moment in time with what I present them. Um, that certainly it's I haven't certainly haven't nailed it um yet, but the lessons that I've learned is that's the best way to be able to to be able to learn is the hard way. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And um and, and using your skills in a service type business like Beyond as well, rather mm. than a product oriented business yep. is another another approach as well. Yeah. Um all right. So we've just got a bit of a fun way to finish here. So yep. just a few questions off the top of your head. Yep. Fastest bowler you faced. Show back to, yep, my twenty right. first birthday at the Gabba. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah and it was I can't remember. Not gro- oh, look, I somehow got some runs, but it was, yeah, one ball in particular in the first over the face of him. It was a ball that should not have been one bounce into the fence. It's sort of just like just back of a length and was pushing what one sixty. So, well, it's your subconscious mind there that's going to take over on or you're out. So one or the other. That's it. Uh, <laughs> um, That's it. Um, a player you looked up to the most as a youngster when you were starting out? So as a kid growing up, I loved Mark War. I loved the way the st- his style, the way he played. Um, and then once Ricky Ponting, Ponting came onto the scene, I just absolutely loved everything about him, the way he fielded, but also the way he, the way books, he batted. His book's up there. 
Yeah. There yeah. we are. Next yeah. to Steve Waugh's biography? Autobiography. Yeah, yeah autobiography. Yeah. yeah. So he was, yeah, Ricky Ponding once he came onto the scene and I was very lucky for him to be my captain and I had some of my biggest and best partnerships with with, with Ricky as well. So I feel very lucky. All right, now being an all-rounder, um, you qualified to answer this question. Um, <laughs> test test side, you can only pick one of the following three players: Imran Khan, Kapil Dev, or Ian Botham. You can't oh. ask me about the conditions. Just yeah, all, no. just, just all round. Oh, look, the all-rounder that I absolutely loved watching and inspired me at certain times was Ian Botham. The way the way he played, especially from a batting perspective, the way he just took on the game with absolutely no fear against anyone, whether it was West Indians, whether it was against like Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson, those guys with no helmet. He was someone who just was very inspiring. The way he just had no was very carefree, but incredibly skilled. We just played baseball before about 40 years before. He it was played T20 even, cricket before yeah, T20 before cricket announced. came off. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. Player you hated bowling to the most? Oh, Virat Kohli. Right. I never, I never got him out. I, I just found, yeah, I found him difficult. It wasn't that he really would always take me apart. He absolutely could if it was his day, and he did it a few times. Um, but just. Yeah. The way I bowled, I just felt like I could never beat him on the outside or and get him get his outside edge or beat him on the inside and get him out get him out LB. So he was, yeah, very challenging. He was the one. So outside the Australian team, which of the thirty teams you've played for do you have the fondest <laughs> memories? <laughs> um, look, I'd have to say, like looking back over my career, probably the the one that jumps out the most is my first year at the Rajasthan Royals in 2008 in the Indian Premier League. That was more like more special now, much more special now because um, because of Shane Warne, who was a captain of that team, who always was an incredible mentor to me, who believed in me all the way since the first time I met him. And that was 2008, gave me opportunities, believed in me in 2008, where I really was sort of on the – on the brink after um, having a number of injuries over a few years to believe in me and give me the um, the opportunities and for us to go through with a team that was supposed to come last um, at the start of the tournament to go through and win it was um, – I know how special it was for me at that time in my career, but now look, knowing how big – how important that was in Shane Warne's career. One is one of his highlights in his career and he ch- achieved everything that all kids dream of as well. That was one of his highlights and knowing that sadly he's not with us anymore is um, stands out probably the most. Yeah, I can't imagine anything more or well, anything better than having Shane Warne on your side <sighs> when you've got those moments of doubt and someone turns around and someone like Shane Warne goes, nah, back him. Yep. Um, that must be super powerful. Um, yep. Good segue into most difficult spinner you faced. Well, it was Shane Warne. Shane Warne. I faced him in um, in a few Sheffield Shield games playing um, against Victoria, and it was just it's outrageous the skill that he had. Yeah, and now the the question which I know everyone's been waiting an hour and ten minutes for, which <laughs> 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 is a real test of <laughs> test of resilience yeah. uh, and mental yeah. stamina. Yeah, um, and I think I know what your answer is going to be. Um, and this is to get the Shane Watson signed. Version of the winner's mindset, um, best slip, best slip fielder you've seen. Oh, look, for me, easily was Mark Waugh. Mm, I, I, I didn't, 
I was on my first tour with Australia was with him. I didn't never played with him, but I played against him a few times for when he was playing for New South Wales. But oh, he was just he did it so easily. It slips is such a hard position to field, um, and it took a lot of work for me to be able to even get a decent slip catch. But Mark War, it was just so beautiful. The ball just went so it elegant. Right? Oh, it looked, looked effortless, just like when he batted. Oh, it was incredible, and he could he could cover ground as well. He was agile to be able to take like. You know, cover territory and take some incredible catches as well. But oh, he was, it really was incredible to watch. All right. Well, there's the answer. Um, <laughs> will anyone ever surpass Tendulkar's 15,921 test runs? I don't think so. It's no. hard to see. It's, it's hard to see. He yeah. played what, 170 test matches or something? And then obviously average close to 50. For some reason, I thought he played 200 test oh, matches. Yeah, it's no, 15,000. And now with the way, Unfortunately, the way Test cricket is going, it's I think it's it's starting to. Even though there's been some incredible series to watch of Test cricket in the last few years, but the way franchise cricket, T20 franchise cricket, continues to come into the world cricket um, domain, I think it's going to be it's going to continue to sort of peter off a little bit, which means longevity playing for 20 years is going to be much harder to do. Yeah, so I think we'll see we'll see Bradman. And Tendulkar at the top of both lists, probably for our lifetimes, yep. I'm guessing. Yeah. For anyone who's played kind of more than 50 tests anyway. All right, last question. Advice you would give to an up-and-coming 11-year-old talented cricketer? Very simply, understand what the best version of you looks like, or even right that there and then, what the right technical little cues are, because there's only going to be probably one or two little things that you're working on as an 11-year-old. But then understand what the like the right thoughts that you have when you've had your best days. And just keep trying to bring those like every ball. Because the one thing when you've got that at any age, you're not worrying about, oh, I need to score runs today. Oh gosh, this person's bowling. You're just putting the right thoughts into your mind. So it just has to be a really simple process to be able to just, it might be one or two thoughts when you've had your best days. Most of it comes down to not really caring or freedom to just be yourself and let your instincts take over. If someone's able to do that, then they're going to enjoy it a lot more for sure. And they'll give themselves the best chance of having more better days more consistently. Really good. I'll be reading this book with my 11-year-old uh, <laughs> cricket-mad son. And I think the thing I like about the book the most is just the versatility of it. So I think 11-year-old cricketers can learn from it. And I think executives and people in markets can learn from it because it's all around um, the way we think about things. And I learn a lot from it. And I'll tell you what, it's been an absolute pleasure, Shane. Thank you for taking the time. It's over an hour. You've been most generous with your time and good luck with being on performance and Really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for being very kind. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.